welcome to the Be Glad Movement. My name's Pollyanna and I'm on a mission to bring you as many stories as possible of good coming out of bad and reasons to be glad. In this vintage episode from 2018, I'm joined by Rebecca Elizabeth Eager, or some of you may know her as Bohemian Bex. Bex's story covers a lot of ground. Growing up, both her parents lived with depression, and as a teenager, she herself suffered with anxiety and depression. Bex went on to fall in love and marry a Royal Marine. Hear what life was like while she was pregnant and he was deployed in Afghanistan, as well as her coping strategies when worrying about her baby son's health while healing the hole in his heart. In this episode, we talk about choosing happiness rather than expecting it to be given to us and looking for even the smallest of things to be grateful for, even when everything else seems so bleak around us, which I'm sure you will agree in light of the current COVID-19 virus pandemic is even more important than ever. So without further ado, I'll hand over to Bex. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, and I, as I was just sort of saying to you before we hit record, I'm really glad that you're coming on because you've got sort of lots of different smaller scenarios where you've sort of essentially used the glad game. Um, and I was also telling you that I was talking to a friend who felt like they couldn't share because they didn't have some big catastrophe that suddenly turned out okay. But actually, what the Be Glad movement is about is using the glad game and acknowledging the negatives but then searching for the positives within and focusing on positives uh, gratitude and um things that we're actually really lucky to have in our lives so without me waffling on for too much more i'm gonna get out of the way and let you tell your story so far away um well where do i start really as you said i think it's really important to discuss positive mental health and um, finding ways to be happy because I think if you're struggling with your mental health and you're going through periods of anxiety or depression when you're able to look at other people and see them overcome the most awful challenges or obstacles and they still come out of it with a positive mindset it kind of makes you feel worse and it makes you feel like oh if they can manage it over that challenge and I can't even cope with the small things it puts you back into that mindset of I'm not good enough I'm never going to get over this and what is wrong with me Um, so I think it's like you said it's really important to be able to have um, smaller choices you know I think mental health and positive mental health is very much about making everyday choices I don't think it's um, something that you um, can do in a a massive right I'm going to overcome this huge challenge I think it is about small everyday choices with whichever challenge comes up if it's something tiny like the kids are arguing or something big like a health concern or something like that I think it's important to try and choose to be happy um, as much as yeah definitely and I I like what you said there about um about making the small choices because it's like when you go to the gym you don't expect to go to the gym once and come out looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger you have to go regularly and you start small and you build it up so by being positive on a regular basis about the smaller things you can sort of sort of build that mental resilience can't you and I know you said to me um that when you and your husband first got together you were a bit all over the place and yeah, that kind of yeah, I think 
Um, when I was younger, I was very much, um, both my parents had depression as I, as I grew up. So I think um, I was quite an emotional child and a very emotional teenager. And I did um, struggle with anxiety um, and depression. And I do very much recognize there's a difference between um, depression as an illness and going through difficult periods in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think when you've been there and um, you have that kind of sense of overwhelm and the feeling of worthlessness that you have with depression, um, I think it's important to make that distinction that it, it can become an illness and an, a chemical imbalance in the brain that needs treatment and it needs therapy. So as we were saying earlier about making small choices, um, if you are struggling with depression, I also think that you need to get help. You know, it isn't the case of um, you can just flick a switch and be happy. Um, so I think as a teenager, I did struggle with depression. Um, and which sounds ridiculous now when you look at it and you think, you know, I was 19 and I was skinny and I had lots of great stuff going for me, but I was depressed. I felt worthless. I felt like I was never good enough. I didn't know what I was doing with my life or where I was going. Um, and I think those things are still very real for people, teenagers as well today. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I met my husband and he's, he's a very positive mindset kind of person. You know, he's, um, he's one of those people that just thinks everything's going to go his way and it kind of always does. Right. Um, so I think it kind of, you know, meeting him and, and falling in love with him kind of helped in lots of ways because he would pick me up on my negative mindset when I was like, oh, I'm, I'm not good enough. I'm never going to manage with this. He'd be like, well, why can't you manage? What is it you're not good enough with? And he'd kind of um, pick out the practical points and make me question myself and question my own negative thinking, right. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then because of the nature of his job, um, obviously, you know, he's in the same boat, but he was working away a lot. And um, I had sort of some personal stuff going on. And um, I wouldn't say I had kind of a, a breakdown, but I was really struggling at university. It wasn't, it just wasn't working out for me. I was struggling with depression and um, self-worth and all of those things. Um, mm-hmm. And sorry my cat's in the background can you see him (laughs) Um, and we met and we were kind of you know very much in love and it was a hard relationship um but we decided or I think I decided quite on a whim that what I was doing being at university and um being try striving towards something I wasn't really sure about um, wasn't working for me. It wasn't working for my mental health. It wasn't working um, on a personal, emotional, or physical level. I wasn't even achieving the grades that I wanted to achieve. Wow. Um, and that pressure felt too much. So we kind of, I went away to stay with him in Plymouth, and um, we had like this lovely weekend. I was in London at the time at uni, and I said, in a nice part of London, great social life, lots of friends, you know, all the stuff that should make you happy, yeah. but it really wasn't. And um, we we went on holiday to Devon and um, I found contentment in that one weekend. I felt really happy. I had no no makeup on all weekend and we just, we went for long walks and we saw the moors and the beach and we had the most amazing time. 
and I realized that I needed that break. I needed to stop trying for uni because that wasn't working for me. Um, and I needed that break from that pressure. So we very quickly was like, should we just move in together and I'll just move in with you and we'll see how things go. And um, as I said to you before, it was the weirdest thing because before I was with him, I wouldn't even go shopping in town by myself. You know, I didn't like being on my own. Okay. Um, uh, I just used to get really anxious if I was on my own. So I'd always go shopping with my mom or my sisters or, you know, I, I didn't particularly like my own company. Um, okay. And um, so, yeah, we moved in together within sort of three weeks. I'd left uni and moved in with him and um, we moved in on the Friday and then he went away on the Monday. Um, wow. And I sort of had to kind of face up to this fear. I was in a brand new city. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have a job. I'd just left uni. We had very little money. And the guy I'd moved in with was away. Um, but actually, it was the best thing I ever did with my life because it really gave me that chance to get to know myself right. and kind of address that feeling of like, well, why don't I like being by myself? What is it about my own company I don't like? um and actually face up to that fear and the anxiety um and address it from that point um and like you say making choices of like right I can sit in the house or sit in my flat because we had a tiny flat and we didn't have a tv license and we didn't even have a bed we had like a lilo on the floor oh, um, wow. you know we had no but it was it was fun and I think it, it was the first point where I started to um see that it's about the choice you make you know I could have seen it as oh my god I'm in this place where I know nobody mm. or I could see it as a huge adventure you know I'd moved in with the man I'd fallen in love with and I was in this new place and it was a new beginning so I think that was the first point I really made uh, a choice to be happy um and it was hard I still felt homesick immensely homesick I miss my family I miss my friends um, but I didn't miss uni and I didn't miss London and I didn't miss the pressure that I had on myself. Um, and I got a really lovely job working as a teaching assistant in a school, um, which again was incredibly challenging working with children with autism and, um, ADHD and, you know, the, the challenging children. But again, it was the first time I found I was doing something worthwhile. And I was like, I love this. I love helping people. Um, and again, a lot of um, sort of helping them with about them making choices about their behavior. Right. And I think by kind of helping them, it made me realize that actually I could make good choices about my behavior and my um, state of mind too. Right. Um, so yeah, that was kind of the first point where I think I started to choose to be happy yeah. um, rather than just kind of assume it's something that you're supposed to have. It's something that I think you actively have to try for. Right. Um, that depends. Yeah, totally. I like what you said um, when we first sort of tried to arrange doing this call um about uh, what was the word you used reframing you know and you said earlier about you you could either sit at home and be scared in the new city or you could see it as a big adventure that's what you mean isn't it when you say reframing yeah. and I love, 
Yeah, ex exactly that. Very much so. Um, I mean, it's not a case of, I mean, that was, God, when did we move in together? Been together about 15 years. So that was a long time ago that we sort of started making those choices. And it's not a case that then, you know, from that point on, I've always been happy and in a positive mindset. You know, there's oh. still, there's still continual, um, struggles and challenges I mean we didn't stay we couldn't stay in that flat we couldn't afford to and um I couldn't stay in that job that I was really loving you know things situations change around you but I think it's oh. still important to try and find the positives in those situations um and I did as I said I felt immensely homesick as much as I love the challenge of being in a, a new city I did feel immensely homesick and I miss my family so much mm -hmm. um so we moved home for a year and spent some time back here saving for our wedding and um but again it's kind of realizing there's um pluses and minuses to situations so um being in Plymouth with him um I had a support network of sort of friends and people that were in the same situation as me um but I didn't have my family and um I also got the, you know, we had the most amazing weekends together when he was home. And so I think the other thing that was kind of quite um, a turning point for me is realizing that you can't, it's not, the situations aren't always going to be perfect. You know, it doesn't have to always be 100% um, happily ever after. There are always going to be difficulties and there are always going to be things that you have to kind of, um, sacrifice or go without or compromise on yeah um, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have to compromise your happiness if that makes sense no totally um, I, um there's a book by a lady called um byron katie uh, loving what is and it's sort of about you know i think we're socially with social media and there's sort of stereotypes and this is the way things should be well life isn't always so cut and dry that you fall into the fairy tale unraveling of your life and you have to sort of say okay well maybe it's not romantic that I don't get to see my husband whenever I want to but I can love the bits that I do get with him you know that kind of stuff um it's just yeah accepting the way things are for you and making the best of, of those scenarios. Yeah, absolutely that I think. It's very much about, um, yeah, making those choices and choosing to see the positives rather than the negatives. I mean, we, uh, um, we did, uh, there's been periods in our relationship where we have gone through phases where I'm like, oh my God, this is so hard. This is literally like the hardest it's ever been to be away from him and it's, you know, I'm lonely, I'm sad, I'm missing my family, I'm um, isolated, you know, you could see all of those negatives mm. um, and, and we did go through periods but I, I sort of, as I've grown up I've realised that actually when we go through those negative periods um, things get worse because you're seeing the negative and it's almost like you kind of magnify that to you um so i think it's kind of a important part to to try and see every day you know literally every morning what is good about today is it um you know it can be a shit day because you've had a shit night's sleep and oh can i swear 
Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you can wake up and be like, oh, it's really shit that I didn't sleep well and I didn't do this or I didn't do that. Or you can wake up and be like, oh, sunshine in today or I've got this happening today that's going to be positive. Or, you know, even if it's something really small, like um, oh, I'm going to have a really nice cup of tea before I start mm-hmm. the day and I've got 10 minutes to kind of savour that. I think it's very important to just make those small choices. Um, and as I said, we, we kind of, yeah, our relationship's never been easy um, because of the circumstances that we were in. Um, but I just always used to tell myself, but it was worth it. You know, it's not easy, but it's worth it. And it, it always was worth it. Um, and actually, that was, that was one thing I was going to try. I, I'm kind of... You might have to edit this a lot because I go backwards and forwards between different things. But one of the things I wanted to show you was um, this. Was, uh, I don't know if you can see it. It's a notebook. Right. That I was, when I was nine. Um, mm. So this was like way before memes and like law of attraction or positive mindset was kind of a thing that people talked about. Um, and I was nine and I was given this notebook by my nana for Christmas. And then I've written all of these quotes in it about positivity. So I've put like, um, keep your face to the sunshine and you cannot see the shadows. Ah. Um, Attitudes are contagious. Are yours worth catching? Like all of those kind of positive mindset things. And actually this little book has kind of come around with me and um, it always seems to appear at a time when I need a little bit of lifting up as well. Oh. And I'm like, oh, I find these little quotes. And I think, oh, that's, that's what I needed to hear today. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think even as a kid, I was kind of very much about like, you need to make a choice to be happy. Um, I think because my parents weren't happy for a lot of my childhood. So I think that kind of used to play on my mind as to why they weren't and what I could do to help them, if that makes sense. Um, So I guess that's probably why I I started the little notebook of happiness. (laughs) I love it. I love it. That's so cool. Um, But yeah, as I was saying, I think uh, I just waffle and you can take out the bits that don't make sense. No, I am actually really enjoying it. I, I like people to be real so I might not edit any of these bits out but um (laughs) um what I was gonna say is I know that you went through a bit of a rough time when yours did your husband have a heart attack had a heart condition or something yeah he did um we had kind of a rough few years um when we had so when we had Matthew um our son so I was in Afghan, so he had sort of the whole um, six-month deployment thing. He had to save his R&R to come home in time for where Matthew was born or when he was due. Mm. So we had kind of this really horrible tour. Um, and, yeah, it was a really difficult period, being pregnant and hormonal and um, emotional about him mm. being away. Um and I remember you've interviewed Mark Ormrod. Do you, um, yeah. I remember vividly, I was like four months pregnant and I was tucking into a 
bag of uh, Pringles actually sitting there watching X Factor mm. and um, Mark and Becky were appearing on X Factor and it was the first time and I, I'm so naive now but I think you know times were a little bit different then um, but it was the first time that I actually thought to myself oh my god he might not come back from this okay like he yeah. might come back or injured or and then um, I remember crying my heart out it was I was so um frantic with worry at that point because it suddenly occurred to me that this was real and that there could be something life-changing from that tour um and yeah it was it was horrible tour there were lots of difficult periods in those six months but he did come home fine and um you know we had he came home he was home like 10 days before Matthew was born and you know he was there at the birth and it was it was great um we I'm sure he won't mind me saying but we struggled then afterwards you know for him to come from somewhere like a tour of Afghanistan in an operational a highly operational environment to come back mm -hmm. and have 10 days and then suddenly he's a father um and the husband again, it was, it was a really um, intense, the first year of Matthew's life was quite an intense period of um, renegotiating our relationship and kind oh. of finding off again and, and again, finding the positives, you know, I could, finding that understanding for each other, I think was very important. We, we've always been quite good at talking to one another. Um, but also finding the positives, you know, that he was home. He, he'd changed drafts so that he was home for um, quite a decent amount of time for Matthew, mm. which was great. And so, so we saw the positives in that. And then, um, yeah, so we had all this readjustment period. And um, <laughs> where I'm going at was that I spent kind of those six months wondering if I was ever going to have my husband there to raise our children. You know, you being pregnant that's one of the things that was on my mind every single day will he know his children would really be here to see them um and then you kind of we slipped into normality and we found our way to be together and we had our second child um so it's like two years between Matthew and Faye and um then very shortly after we had Faye um Al collapsed in a classroom and um no explanation I didn't know why what had happened but um I remember vividly um I will try not to cry because I've, I've told this story lots of times so I will try not to cry but I remember vividly I'd you know Faye was only three months old and um we could only four bunk cars so um I had taken the car with him and I'd gone to pick Matthew up from nursery and I was carrying Faye and um you know the baby carrier yeah. And then um, it was, Matthew wasn't in a very happy mood when I picked him up that day and he didn't want to walk. And we'd lived in a really hilly place. We lived in Plymouth, so there were lots of hills and it was all uphill coming back from the nursery. So I was trying to push him in a pushchair. He didn't want to go in his pushchair. He didn't want to walk. And I was trying to carry the baby. And it sort of took me half an hour to get this 10 minute walk home, you know, with a toddler and a baby. And I was dripping with sweat and furious that Al had taken the car. I was so angry. I was like, oh, he doesn't need the car. I've got two kids. They could have got the train. And I was so angry. Uh -huh. And 
then he phoned me and I could hear instantly from his voice that something was wrong. You get quite attuned to each other on the phone and he explained mm-hmm. that he'd um, collapsed in a classroom and he was at the hospital and they were doing tests. And I, I remember, um, I mean, they didn't know what was wrong with him, but he mentioned on the phone that they wanted to test him for epilepsy. And I thought, oh God, this is real and this is serious. And I remember kind of coming in and I dealt with the children and gave them both a snack and I sat on the stairs and I cried and I felt so guilty for the anger that I just had, you know, for something stupid about him taking the car um, and all of those fears. And I thought all of that worry of like what happens health wise kind of mm. came back. And um, that period of not knowing what was wrong with him stretched over a period of kind of around six months. That was in the January. Um, and then he sort of had, I think he had like a week sick leave. Um, (laughs) but they didn't know what was wrong. So in some, in some ways at that point, they were like, has he just fainted in other ways? Because he kind of, apparently, um, he was convulsing. So they thought that it was some kind of epilepsy, but anyway, we had a long period of going to different doctors. Um, and he was, quite poorly and and very stressed during that period and um before he'd collapsed he'd had chest pain um which we didn't really think much of at the time um and then in the july because he had chest pain and it was done so flippantly he'd gone to see somebody and had um what did the brain scan things you know to check for epilepsy he'd had one of those done Mm -hmm. um and the doctor said you haven't got epilepsy you know everything's fine you probably just fainted however because you had chest pain I just want you to check in with a friend of mine who's a cardiologist to make sure there's nothing wrong on that front mm. and it was done so casually that we were like yeah fine um neither of us kind of considered that there was actually anything else wrong um, and then we had he had a couple of different tests done um and then he had to have what they call an angiogram where they put like dye into your arteries to check for things uh, wow. check for block um but because we'd been running late we sort of were rushing and everything when he'd gone in to have this um he had quite a high heart rate so they said they had to give him just a small dose of beta blockers to slow his heart rate down just so they could get a clear picture of what was going on yeah. um all perfectly normal and then um, it was it was three days before our wedding anniversary so um my father-in-law had come down to stay with the children so I could go to this appointment with him and then we were going to do this hospital appointment and um and then go out for a nice lunch so and it was a lovely day so I was there in like a skimpy pair of shorts and my favorite top you know ready for my lunch date you know didn't yeah. think anything was um gonna happen it was kind of our our wedding anniversary night out type thing um and he came out he'd gone in for his scam um and he came out of the doctor's appointment um, and said oh, i've just got to sit down with you for a minute till they take out the thing in his hand the catheter whatever it was called mm. um so he sat with me and then he yeah, i remember um his whole face went ashen right. and he said Babe, I don't feel very well. 
oh, what's the matter? Do you need to lie down? Um, he went, I don't know, I just feel really odd. I was like, hold on, I'll get a nurse. So I spoke to a nurse. I said, my husband's just had a scan, uh, angiogram. He's not feeling well. And she looked at him and we were in a cardiology department. You know, they, they were older people there. We were the youngest there by a mile. And so she sort of looked at this fit young man. Yes, he was ashen, but obviously didn't think there was anything really wrong and said, oh, can he walk? Come, come with me and um, we'll go and get you a bed. Um, he stood up and took about three steps and then he just collapsed on the floor. Um, the nurse took his pulse and the next thing I know, there was um, another nurse. They, they lifted his legs because I think they thought he'd fainted. Uh, the nurse took his pulse and then um, they, the other nurse said something about him, there being no pulse. And he instantly started CPR. Um, and then there was an alarm sounded and they were calling for um, the defibrillator machines to come wow. in. And I remember standing there and, you know, you've, you haven't met my husband. He's quite a big guy. You know, he's a, um, he's a big, healthy guy. And um, he was just laying on the floor, completely white. And this nurse was performing CPR on him. And it was something that you see in movies it wasn't something that you kind of ever expect to see in reality they pulled a screen across him um and as i said to you he's um the cardiologist who'd been treating him again the cardiologist very casually when we first went to see him was quite dismissive you know no one thought there was anything wrong with his heart we had no idea um but as i said to you on um, when we were chatting, he was a fantastic cardiologist and he was right outside this doctor's door. Um, so then he was um, brought back round. He didn't need the defibrillator. They managed to bring him back round with CPR and they got his pulse going and everything was fine. And whew, So, yeah, and then he was admitted into hospital for obviously more tests. Um, Unfortunately, it didn't end there. I had no idea how complicated and difficult to pin down heart conditions were. Mm. Um, so we had like probably a year, maybe 18 months of further testing and, and different things. Um, and as I said to you, he was referred to um, a military cardiologist who again was like top in his field. Um, but I think because of where it happened um, and because of how it happened, um, Dr. Morgan Hughes, who was the cardiologist that performed CPR and, and brought him back round then, um, I think he sort of felt a responsibility to Al to kind of find what was wrong and, um, and kind of give him the best treatment and the best life going forward as well you know wow. he's only even 30 at this point you know this was years ago now and um so I think Dr Morgan Hughes kind of um took responsibility of Al's care quite a lot and yeah. I, as I say it's, I can't ever say I'm glad that that happened there's no way yeah. it, 
yeah awful to live through but the circumstances you know if you're going to go into cardiac arrest he was outside his doctor's door literally you know a cardiologist's door um he's been in some high level dangerous situations in his life that had happened in those scenarios Um, yeah or if he you know when we whenever we hear stories of like people that have gone for a run and their hearts given out you know those things where they're on their own Mm. so um I think it's it's made me eternally grateful that um I still have him obviously and that he's yeah um and also the kind of the way it panned out I feel as though but you know my business is quite a spiritual business I'm quite a spiritual person but I I feel very much that he was being looked after in that scenario um feel like it was if it was going to happen there couldn't have been a better place for it to have happened um so I very much feel like he was kind of being taken care of by a higher power in some way um unfortunately it did you know a few years later it did kind of mean the end of his career um it it took a kind of a couple of years before we got to that point um that he couldn't continue in the military so he did have to change his career path um and i think for both of us you know it's changed our life path in lots of ways in in as I said to you about how we kind of choose to see the positives in a situation and choose to see the fact that, you know, we are still here, we're still together. Um, yeah. We still have, you know, two healthy children and, um, yeah, just kind of trying to, and it is, it is not easy picking up the pieces from that scenario is never going to be an easy thing to do, but, that's kind of what we've done by trying to find the positives in it rather than be like I said to you, you know, be like, Oh my God, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. Why has this happened to me? Why is this awful thing going on? Rather than kind of dwelling on that, because you do have those questions and you do feel that there is, um, there is an element of anger and resentment. Um, I very much felt that actually when we, when it first happened, I did feel angry because I felt um, that I'd had enough of worrying about him, that, you know, he'd been to these dangerous situations and I'd spent my pregnancy worrying about him. I didn't want to have a toddler and a baby and worry about him. I wanted him to be healthy and home. And, you know, I did feel angry. Um, But I think it's important to recognise those feelings, what they are, um, and and try and see the positives in them and try and find the positives in them yeah um you know you can't stay angry because that just makes you bitter and not a nice person so i think it's about feeling through the emotions if that makes sense and and recognizing allowing yourself to feel them um and understanding that they know that's perfectly normal to feel that way um then you can move on from that and then you get to a place where you feel gratitude for having overcome situations. Yeah. And it's kind of been, um, 
for me, I'd already, actually, I didn't mention that, but when Matthew was born, one of the tricky things we had was that he was born with a heart condition. So um, it was, again, a very hard, when I said to you about him coming back from Afghan and then becoming a father and um, Matthew was quite poorly for the first few months of his life. So again, we were struggling with it, but trying to find the positives in it. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't, um, it was about choosing to see the, the positive side of things rather than being angry about it all the time. Um, and things to kind of work together rather than be kind of pulling in opposite directions, which was really tricky a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Imagine, and, you know, I've, I've heard it, this same story said by a few people uh, from the guys and the girls, you know, um, coming back from a war zone essentially to then suddenly being expect expected to settle into married life being a father or a mother and, and those kind of things, it's really hard to adjust, you know, really, really hard to adjust. So, yeah, yeah. can't be underestimated. No, mm. and I think those things in your relationship, I think they do, um, they do make you stronger and I think that they, um, <laughs> it's not easy being married to somebody that does that for a living and does that as a job. Um, and I don't think I know anyone who would say that they openly liked it and loved that as part of their lifestyle. You kind of fall in love with the person and the lifestyle is kind of what you have to put up with to be with that person, if that sure. makes sense. Um, yeah. But I think that that does, it does make you stronger and it does make you um, recognise the good in each other and and try harder. I think a lot of, um, I don't know whether that's fair to say, I've never been in a 15 year civilian relationship, but I think we're always trying in our relationship. We don't wanna take each other for granted. We don't wanna let it go. We don't wanna have just gone through everything we've gone through together and then throw it away because it's too much hard work. You know, so I think yeah. that's true for a lot of military relationships that you kind of, you learn that it's worth the, worth the effort yeah. um wise um yeah. yeah so that's kind of those are the difficult stuff that we've lived through i think those are the kind of situations where we it's been really hard to see the positives um and it's really really been a hard choice to to choose to be happy um and I, you know, it's, I'm not going to sit here and pretend I'm a saint and I didn't get angry and I didn't have days or weeks even of feeling resentful and bitter and sad about the scenarios. Um, but it, just, you just don't stay in that bitterness and in that sadness. You have to try and find a way to pull yourself out of it um, and try and like you say play the glad game play um write gratitude lists right even if it is just really small things that you could be grateful for in the day 
um, I think that helps to twist your mindset into being positive um, and seeing the best of a situation, whether that situation is a good situation or a bad situation. There's always a way to make the best of it. Does that make sense? Totally, totally. I think that sums it all up perfectly. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I think it's, as I said to you, it's, um, I've been quite lucky. I'm quite a spiritual person. I think after Matthew was born, because we struggled with his, um, with kind of becoming a family, we struggled with that quite a lot. And then I kind of was personally within an, a job that I was fe feeling unfulfilled in before I had my son. Yeah. Um, so I'd started kind of doing more um spiritual things like reiki healing was something that kind of came in my path and then i explored that so i think having that kind of spiritual background helped me with a lot of the challenges after um yeah. you know when i was poorly i think i was um i was still working in a sort of um, doing alternative therapies and um, I could draw on that to help him so you know he was so stressed with the not knowing you know if you've ever had a kind of situation where you're you've been told that there might be something wrong with you but we're not quite sure what mm. um, off you go home and we'll try and figure it out it's you know that level of stress that low level of stress for 12 months to 18 months you know, it did take a toll on us, but I think I was able to draw on um, the complementary therapies. We did Reiki and we did reflexology. I did I did that for him to help mm. him kind of unwind, help him to kind of release some of that stress that was going on with that. Um, and and as a family, we do it as well. The kids are quite kind of. Um, open to alternative therapies now they're like i need a crystal to help me sleep mum can i have oh, one? <laughs> oh, that's lovely tell us a bit more about your business then hun. tell us about the reiki and the yeah it started with reiki as i said after matthew was born he was born with a congenital congenital heart defect so um he had a hole in his heart so it seems that all the men in my life have broken hearts oh. <laughs> but i don't connected <laughs> but um yeah he was he was born with a heart defect so the first few months of his life he was um really quite poorly um and he wasn't kind of putting on weight and they were discussing different options um before i had him i'd done um a reiki healing session a couple of healing sessions on myself i'd had them done and the lady who did them offered to teach me level one Reiki so I could give Reiki to people in like family and friends. Mm. And I did it. I fell in love with Reiki and I thought it would be a really nice thing to try. Um, and then when Matthew was born and he was poorly, I did Reiki on him every day, every single day he'd go to bed. Um, and I was very like, I didn't want to be, because you know your first one you have to do everything right I didn't want to be one of the mums that would hold his hand going to sleep so he used to go in his cot um, and then he used to settle himself we had a muzzy and a dummy and things um, so then I'd sneak back in after he'd gone to sleep and I'd spend sort of 15 or 20 minutes giving him a little bit of Reiki every day 
um, either when he had a nap or at bedtime or sometimes both. Mm. Um, and when he was, I think he was about 10 months old, with the condition he had, he had to, as it's a, because he had a hole in his heart, basically as he grew, that hole should close by itself. Right. But um, to begin with, he wasn't getting enough oxygenated blood and different things were going on that he wasn't growing as quickly as he should have been okay. um, so it was kind of every month I think it was every month we need to go back to the hospital and they'd be like right if he hasn't put on this much next month we're gonna have to do surgery and, and close it well every month we'd go and I'd be frantic that he had to put on the right amount of weight and um, I didn't breastfeed him for very long because I, I needed to know that he was getting all of the milk that he could get and I, oh. you know, I was very weaned him early everything I could do to make it sure that he reached every milestone that the hospital set and every time he was just on it so then the doctors would have a chat and they'd be like should we do it shouldn't we do it oh I don't know whether he needs surgery and they'd be like we'll we'll wait and see so they give it another month and another milestone and um by the time he got to 10 months um they and again at the nine month point everything was still in question. It was still a case of, does he need surgery or does he not? At 10 months, they did his little scan that they did and they couldn't find the hole in his heart, which is perfectly normal because it's supposed to close when, as they get bigger. But I am convinced it's because of his Reiki because he had it every single day. Um, But whether it helped or it didn't help it helped me it helped me to feel like I was doing something right. uh, and and I could do something and it was you know it was quite a relaxing thing he was he was a very chilled baby as well yeah, he, yeah for me it felt like I had as I said to you before when I used to have anxiety and um depression and things uh, when I was younger I had a lot of control issues you want to control everything don't you because you feel like your life isn't in control sometimes when you're struggling with depression Mm -hmm. and anxiety um and that was one thing that I felt that I could take control of and I could do for him um and then so it grew from that point after after his heart had closed I didn't want to go back to my old job so then I retrained and I did reflexology um which was a bit more of a kind of practical and less spiritual um form of and then yeah then it's just kind of grown from that so I do um tarot card readings and I've done crystal healing as well um I'm very into the kind of alternative stuff and the freaky stuff but it's it's all (laughs) fine so good I I don't think you should call it freaky I think it's a I would use the word more gentle I just you know a bit more gentle yeah. I think yeah it, yeah exactly it is just an alternative and complementary you know I would never say to somebody not to seek medical help I mean god I don't know where we would be if Matthew hadn't had the care that he had or Al didn't have the care that he had for yeah. both of his um you know I'd never consider anything other than proper medical care but it, for for certain issues it can help it can run alongside and really help mm-hmm. um you know i think it would be a huge treatment avenue for people with ptsd um and you know coming like we said earlier about coming back from war zones um i think that kind of 
gentle non-invasive approach you know where they don't really have to do a lot but it can really help um just reset their energy and and get them into a different space um so i think that you know really could be explored for that but whether it ever would be i've no idea um and it's definitely been something that's offered me a comfort and um a, a way of helping with all of the medical scenarios that we've kind of gone through. Sure, sure. Oh. No, I think you're right. I think it could really help some if people are open-minded about it and then they allow themselves to to receive it. I, I definitely think it could help. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll share the links to your pages though at the end of the oh. video. But links yeah. to um, so that people can find out more because I'm sure you know you you are. A military wife or you know former military wife with these experiences you know that they've helped your husband and your baby and not baby anymore but you know um yeah, so why should, they, yeah, why should they not help another another guy or girl that's in the military so i'll definitely share the links because i'm sure there's going to be people that have maybe gone down the medical route or whatever and aren't getting the help that they need then you might be able to help them so that'd be awesome but yeah as well we said with the therapies i think um it can also like we were saying earlier help with positive mental health and with kind of um people that are struggling with stress levels you know the stress levels that reiki can do with stress and reflexology just that kind of moment and treatment that gives you that calm can really help reset your brain waves and sort of the the chemical release in your brain as well and kind of release the endorphins which do make you feel good you know there is some science behind it as well that um it can really help with stress related conditions and positive mental health I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode as much as I enjoyed re-listening to it. I think there's some really important points in there that we can all take away with us under the current circumstances. If you like this episode, please do like and share it with anyone you know who may benefit from hearing it. And also, please do join the conversation over on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. I'd love to hear from you over there. The Be Glad movement is free to listen to, but if you did want to help me raise money for the Samaritans, then please do head over to beglad.co.uk and use the link on the website there to donate. All your contributions will be so gratefully received, so thank you for that. The Samaritans really do incredible work. With so much love, you've been listening to Rebecca Elizabeth Eager, Pollyanna and the Be Glad movement. Until next time, please take care of yourselves and each other and I'll look forward to hearing from you in another episode.